Matthew chapter number four, Matthew chapter number four, and man, what a blessing to get to be with you in the house of the Lord tonight. I'm glad the Lord has everything we need. He's the encouragement that we need, and he's the strength that we need. He's the wisdom that we need. Man, I'm just glad he's all sufficient. Matthew chapter number four, and uh, there's a truth that God laid on my heart I want to share with you this evening. I've enjoyed, I've been reading through the book of Matthew and just spending some time examining our Lord's earthly ministry. And there's something that as I read through the book of Matthew, particularly the early days of this ministry that God drew my attention to, I want to draw your attention to tonight. Matthew chapter four, let's begin reading in verse number 18. Matthew chapter four, verse number 18. The Bible says in Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. Going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a ship with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. We'll stop there and pray. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be in this place. Lord, I don't believe any of us are here by accident, but that providence has brought us to this moment in time because you have a truth for us. Help us to glean and gain this truth. And may, Lord, you win the victory in our hearts tonight as we yield ourselves obediently unto you and to your word. Father, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. What we've read tonight is the commission of James and John and of Peter and of Andrew into a life of following the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is not the very first time that our Lord has uh, come across Peter. In fact, we know of uh, likely at least two other occasions prior to this. The Gospel of John records the moment whenever two of the uh, disciples of John, when they uh, hear John proclaim Jesus to be the Lamb of God, which take away the sin of the world, that they leave John and they follow Jesus and they listen to the words of Jesus. And then one of them, Andrew, goes and, and finds his brother and tells him that we've found the Messiah. And so this would have been Peter's first, likely first, interaction with the Lord. Then we're told of a miracle that the Lord performs uh, when he raises up Peter's mother-in-law and restores her to help. And so this is not the first time that Simon Peter has been around the Lord Jesus, nor is it likely the first time that Andrew has. We don't know for sure about James and John, but it's likely that they also were acquainted with him. But this moment in their personal history is pivotal. Because this is the moment where they go from simply knowing him to following him. Now, prior to this moment, they knew him. And undoubtedly, they had a certain degree and measure of faith in him. I mean, they believed him to be the Messiah, the the chosen of God. But their life changes at this moment because they are called from a life of mundanity to a life of following him. It's interesting, all four of these men are fishermen. That's their vocation. That's their occupation. It's what they do for a living. It's what they spend all of their time uh, throughout their secular activity day by day engaging in, is, is taking care of their nets and sailing out and trying, judging by the weather and judging by the season and, and judging by the, the conditions of the seas to find where the fish were and to let down their nets and try to bring home some sort of uh, provision, some sort of sustenance to their family. And it's interesting when you read about this moment in their life 
that the Holy Spirit of God lays such an emphasis on the nets that these fishermen used. In fact, you'll find that coupled with Luke's account of Peter's call into the ministry, which we'll look at here in a few moments, that there are three different occasions when the nets that these fishermen used are emphasized. Now, before we get into our message, let's just ask ourselves, what is meant by that? Why does God lay such an emphasis on these nets that these fishermen used? Well, the nets were the instruments of their secular activity. There was nothing wrong with the fact that they owned nets. In fact, you would have probably looked a little suspect at a fisherman that didn't own any. Amen. Uh, Nothing wrong with the fact that they owned nets. Nothing wrong with fishing. Nothing wrong with that uh, noble vocation. And yet we find that in their lives, these nets were representative of more than just what they did as a job. In fact, we could say this, that a fisherman, his nets were in some ways associated with life itself to him. If his nets were not in order, he couldn't live. He couldn't provide for his family. If his nets were not in order, he couldn't do the job that he had been called to. If his nets were not in order, then his greatest resource and tool of value and of purpose was out of commission and it was meaningless. We could say three things about these nets. Number one, these nets were the object of their occupation. It's what they did for a living, is they handled these nets, they mended them, they cleaned them, they cast them. If they weren't acquainted with the nets, then they weren't going to be very good fishermen. We could say, number two, that these nets were the source of their provision. Now, this was not sport fishing that they were engaged in. Uh, They weren't going out and wetting a line. This was wholesale, you know, uh, industrial scale, we might say. This is this is uh, fishing for the purpose of harvesting meat, that it might be consumed and that it might be sold. In other words, when we're talking about their nets, we're talking about what they did for a living. We're talking about how they provided for their family. We're talking about the very heartbeat of their sustenance and their life. But then I would say, number three, that these nets were the focus of their attention. When we read in this passage of Scripture, they care deeply about these nets and the condition of them. In fact, we're told in one place that they're casting their nets. Another place, we're told that they're mending their nets. And then in Luke's account, we're told that they're washing their nets. It would not be an overstatement to say that their entire lives revolved around what they did with these nets. And in our text before us tonight, the Bible tells us that they lay down these nets. And they turn and they begin to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll just try to frame it as simply as I know how. When I read this passage, the thought that the Lord impressed upon my heart is in many ways how these men treated their nets is how a great many of us treat life itself and particularly our Christian life. What I mean by that is we have a faith in the Lord. We know God, but we're not following Him. We're instead distracted with the tending of our nets. I want to be very clear with what I'm about to say. This isn't a clarion call to full-time ministry. If that's the will of God for your life, there's there's not been much in my life that's been a greater blessing than full-time ministry. And I think that's a wonderful thing. But that's not really what I'm talking about tonight. I'm asking you this question. Are you simply tending your nets in your Christian life? Or are you rather following Him to great effect? I want you to notice three thoughts, and maybe you'll understand a little better as we... Dig a little deeper. I want you to notice, number one, how they were content in our passage. Now, stop and think about the information that they possessed at this moment. 
I mean, they understood that the Messiah had been revealed. They believed him to be the Messiah. They understood that he was the one sent from God for the redemption of the nation and for the exaltation of the Lord and of righteousness in Israel. And they had seen firsthand his power in raising up Peter's mother-in-law. How could they possibly go back to the mundane, ordinary life of simply tending to their nets? But, you know, you stop and think about it, and we're really no different. We've seen God do some incredible things. And what a tragedy it is that our Christian life would be relegated to no more than maintenance instead of growing deeper in our walk with Him. After all that you and I have seen, after all that we know, why would we be contented to do nothing more than tread water spiritually and to maintain the pattern and the position that we've hitherto attained, rather than trying to grow deeper in our walk with the Lord. Stop and notice three things that they're doing with their nets, and this may help frame it a little bit. In verse number 18, the Bible says this, Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew's brother. And here's what they're doing. They're casting a net into the sea. And then the Holy Spirit says this afterwards, for they were fishers. Now, why does the Holy Spirit say that? Is he not stating the obvious? But is not the stating of the obvious the very force of the point that he's making? You see, they were just simply casting their nets into the water. Why were they doing that? Well, that's what fishermen do. Here's another way we could say it. Well, you know, that person, they go to church. Well, why do they do that? Well, that's just what Christians do. Well, that person reads their Bible. Why do they do that? Well, that's just what Christians do. Let me say it this way. In the casting of their nets... They are simply living their lives and doing what is natural, ordinary, and expected of them. You know, one of the things that is so crushing to our uh, Christian development is routine. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. There's, there's not a lot of difference between routine and faithfulness. But God knows the heart. And when what we do becomes merely the exercising of a routine instead of the meaningful, vibrant living of a Christian life in close fellowship with the Lord. Once we've allowed that to become conflated, we are but a heartbeat away from hypocrisy, backsliddenness, and destruction. You see, it's not wrong that these fishermen were casting their nets. In fact, every fisherman all across this part of the world at this time was casting their nets. But it should have bothered them that their life was no more than the casting of nets in the first place. Can I tell you that God God saved you for you to be more than just saved? I don't want you to misunderstand what I mean. I'm not denigrating the idea of salvation and the fullness of it and all that it contains and all that it implies and all that it suggests. But if all salvation is to you is merely I've had my sins washed and I've got a seat in heaven and now me and God one day will see each other, but we really have no further use for each other between now and then, then you've missed what God saved you for. And the sad truth is a great many Christians, it's not about whether you're in full-time Christian service or ministry. It's about whether or not you wake up day by day and view your life as a blank canvas upon which God can paint all manner of possibility and potential. Where God is cultivating you and growing you and developing you. Where He is stretching your faith. Where He is growing your belief in Him. And where you are constantly developing in your relationship with Him. Or is day by day you simply... Casting your nets. I would say that they were casting their nets and that 
reminds me of people that are just simply living their lives. There's nothing wrong with that, but there's nothing particularly right with it either. And it misses the great potential that God would seek to exalt you to. Then look at verse 21. The Bible says this. Going on from thence, he saw two other two brethren, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a ship with Zebedee, their father. This is what they were doing. The Bible says they were mending their nets, and he called them. Now, the first two brethren, Simon and Andrew, they are casting their nets. The most ordinary, natural, you know, predictable behavior that a fisherman could do. But James and John, they're doing something further than that. They are not just casting their nets, but they are correcting their nets. Let me say it this way. How do you view your Christian life? Is it merely the exercising of routine, the living of your life? But then number two, here's how they viewed their responsibility. They were fixing their flaws. Every time that a net would tear a hole in it, they'd sew it up. What's wrong with that preacher? Well, nothing's wrong with it. But imagine how they'd feel if they ended their life and all that they had to show for it was a bunch of mended nets. Do you view your Christianity as merely the maintenance of your mistakes? Now, I don't want you to get me wrong. I mean, we all mess up. If you're looking for somebody that messes up, you found one. You're staring right at him. Some of y'all are. Some of y'all is looking away. But, you know, some of y'all are staring right at him. <laughs> and I'm certainly not suggesting that when we make mistakes, we should not seek to get those right. But I wonder if how you view your Christian life is merely a matter of simply keeping short accounts and trying to go through and by the grace of God fix and resolve the issues that you've caused day by day. If all your Christianity is is trying to keep God from being angry at you, then you've missed what God's trying to do in your life. Now, don't misunderstand me. If you've got something wrong in your life, we have a gracious God who's faithful and just to, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We'll confess our sins. And, and he is the propitiation for our sins. And not our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. Thank God that there is a God that is forgiving and gracious. And you will make mistakes. And I will make mistakes. And we will have to go to God. And we will have to confess it. We will have to get it right. I just wonder if we ever do anything more than that. Yeah. Or if all our Christianity has been reduced to is a constant groundhog's day of failure and then pleading for forgiveness. I wonder if it has become nothing more than just floating along until we make some mistake that we're embarrassed and ashamed over. And the only prayer we ever pray is asking God's forgiveness. The only prayer that we ever pray is seeking His grace or His mercy. And God never has time to develop us any further because we really have no interest in going further than merely the fixing of our flaws. But now turn with me to Luke chapter 5. We'll come back to our text before we're done. But I want you to notice another thing that's described. Luke chapter 5. Now, you could disagree with me about this. Good people could, no doubt. I'm of the belief that Luke chapter 5 is expanding on what transpires in Matthew chapter 4. I don't believe they're separate occasions. I believe it's giving us more details of, of what is transpiring. And it says this in Luke chapter 5, verse number 1. It says, It came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, that's the Sea of Galilee, and saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. Now, 
the first group, Simon and Andrew, they are casting their nets. That reminds me of the idea of just simply living our lives, just existing day by day as a Christian. And then James and John, they are correcting their nets. And it reminds me of us relegating our Christian life to merely the fixing of our flaws. But here we're told also about Simon and also about Andrew that at this moment they were washing their nets. We could say they were cleaning their nets. Now, why would a fisherman do this? Well, simply because if his nets were not cleaned and all the debris that might be dredged up from the bottom of the lake as they drug that net along could very well tear their net, could very well destroy their net, or it might simply keep it from being able to ensnare fish in the proper way. A great many of the fish that would be ensnared in a net, some would be just scooped up, but some would be caught within the webbing of the net. But here... They're simply removing the refuse from these nets. Now, what they're doing is not wrong. And if a person's going to be a fisherman, it's in fact needful that they do this very thing. But I wonder how many of us, our Christianity, the very apex and pinnacle of it, has simply become, and this smites my heart because I'm guilty of this, merely a matter of trying to step-by-step inch closer in the matter of consecration, tighter standards, closer standards, more rigid standards, without there being any real relationship with Christ or life of Christ in it. Listen, I, I believe in standards. You do too. We all believe in standards. You don't believe that same reason you're grossed out by people at Walmart, just like I'm grossed out by people at Walmart. We all believe in standards. It really just comes down to where that line is drawn. But we all believe in standards. Everybody does. If you don't believe that, next time your doctor operates on you, let him do it without washing his hands. Next time the person at the restaurant prepares your food, let him do so without washing their hands. You believe in standards, just like everybody does. Standards are not a bad thing. I, I think there has been a sort of, of cheap grace that's been promoted in modern Christianity that would suggest that a lapse in standards or a complete lack thereof is somehow grace or somehow uh, mature or somehow noble. And I don't believe that's true. I, I, I don't. When I read my Bible, we have a holy God and we ought to be holy because he's holy. But likewise, I will say that there is a temptation to make Christianity merely a foot race to determine who can be the most rigid in their standards, irrespective of whether God has any thoughts or opinions about it in the first place. And sometimes in your life you can sort of denigrate and, and reduce your Christianity down to merely who can walk straighter and tighter and, and who can get the most refuse out of their life, the, the most filth out of your life. And don't get me wrong, we need to get the filth out of our life. But you know that you can be clean and still be carnal. You can have standards and still not look like Jesus. And so there must be something not less than that, but something more than that in our lives. You see, when I read this passage in the description of their nets, I'm reminded how they were content. They were content to know him. They were content to believe in him. And they were also content to go back possessing that belief and live ordinary lives that in many ways summarize, I think, a lot of the ordinary Christianity that so many of us are so prone to find ourselves mired in. But then it goes on this day a step further. Let me read a little further in Luke chapter 5. I'll read to you what happens. 
Verse 3 says this, He entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep, and let your nets for it, let down your nets for a draught. Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net break. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him, at the drought of the fishes which they had taken. So was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. When they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. In other words, what happens in Luke chapter number 5 transforms them. Prior to this, they are content to just keep living their life in ordinary obscurity, not following him, not going any further in their walk with him. They knew him. They believed in him. They were convinced he was who he said he was and that he had divine power. But that was enough for them. But when this transpires, and then he calls them to a deeper walk, all of a sudden now they're willing to go with him. I want you to notice how they were convinced in this passage. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, I'm going to leave a lot more on the table than I'm going to feed you tonight from this passage because time would fail me. But I just want you to notice three things that it'll take for us to discontent ourselves with merely a maintenance Christianity and instead purpose in our hearts that we want to fellowship with him and walk with him and go further with him and go deeper with him than what we've heretofore been content with. Notice the three things that convinced them. Number one, his wisdom was proven. Do you notice what Simon says in verse 5? Simon answering said to him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. Simon says something interesting here. He says, you know, Lord, we are experienced fishermen. We know what we're doing. We have done as good a job as any man could be expected to do. We have fished these waters, and for whatever reason, we have come up empty, and it is folly to go back out. Now, he does yield, and he does consent to go back out at the desire and at the behest of the Lord Jesus. When he does, we've read it, you've read it a hundred times. They go out, and they catch an entire net full of fishes. Why was that so important? Was that necessary? If they were going to go to this deeper walk, why did the Lord do it this way? I mean, you understand, he's not limited. He could have performed any number of miracles, but he performs this miracle. Set against the backdrop of their failure and inadequacy, he instead guides them to waters that they had already fished, but under his direction become fruitful. Here's what he was doing. His wisdom was proven. He wanted them to understand that he knew better than they did. That experience was not the metric. That cunning was not the metric, that intelligence was not the metric, but that in fact, if their life was to be fruitful, it would have to be guided by the direction and hand of God. Listen, biblical Christianity that's lived without Christ is just as fruitless as paganism. 
even if we learn how to replicate what we think Christianity looks like, even if we learn how to mimic and, and imitate what good Christians do and how they behave, if all that has been done, stripped of and removed from personal fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, then it is of no effect, of no meaning, of no fruit or value. They had gone out and they had fished. And they had fished competently and failed in doing it. Now they go back out. And I think it would be accurate to say that they're going back out against good counsel. Against, here's a word we've heard a lot of the past few years, the expert, expertise. Simon's an expert, isn't he? Against expertise, they go back out. But it doesn't matter. Because at the end of the day, the wisdom of God, (laughs) at the end of the day, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. And Jesus Christ has made unto us wisdom and sanctification. And only by walking with him day by day can we gain the wisdom that we need of God and from God. And can our life be meaningful? His wisdom was proven. Then notice number two, his word was proven. Peter says this, nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net break. You know what they learned that night? They learned that the word of Christ was powerful. They learn that the word of Christ, when exercised in faith and applied to their life and their circumstances. I mean, you understand, he is not quoting Old Testament scripture. He is making a fresh declaration concerning their life pertinently and presently. I want to be clear with what I'm about to say. I'm not suggesting that the Lord is going to give some special revelation or some personal interpretation of Scripture. But what I am saying is this, that as the Word of Christ was being given in this passage, it was being given directly to and personally relevant to their lives. And they were then applying the Word of God to their life and their personal present circumstance. In other words, that as Christ communicated the truth of God to them and they in obedience applied it to their lives, that was where power came from. That was where fruitfulness and success came from. I would say that in your life and in my life, if we want our life to be pleasing to the Lord and, and what we could use this term successful, I guess, then it's going to take the word of God applied personally directly to our life by the administration of the Holy Spirit and by our obedience unto the word of God as it's given. This book, hey, this book has, contains more brilliance. Me and my wife were talking about this just last night. It's, it's refreshing to read history that is factual. Because so little of what we've been told throughout human history is just pure propaganda. Most of it is. And so little of it is true. And there's, thing, there's things you and I think we know <laughs> that if we really knew what had happened throughout human history, we'd be shocked at what a level of propaganda has been perpetrated on the human population. But you know, when you read this book, you're reading accurate truth and history. And we were talking about the Word of God and how precious it is and what a valuable thing it is to have truth. And I'm saying that in our lives, it is not merely the emulating or mimicking. And by the way, this is why the devil, when he starts a religion, he always tries to rob men of the Word of God, to put a distance between them and the Word of God, to keep them from being able to read the Word of God. All the devil's religions have that earmark to them. Because power comes in your life and in my life through the word of God being applied to our lives through our obedience to it. His word was proven. But then look at verse 8. The Bible says, when Simon Peter saw it, 
he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him, at the drought of the fishes which they had taken. I would say his wisdom was proven and his word was proven, but evidently in Peter's mind and heart, his worth was proven. He saw this wasn't just a guru, this wasn't just a teacher, this wasn't just just somebody spouting platitudes, but he understands now and he uses this term Lord, Master. He understands there to be a disparity between who this man is and what this man is and who and what he is as a broken human being. And he says this, I'm not even worthy to be in your presence, not even worthy to be where you're at, Lord. He evidently was convinced that the Lord's worth it. He's worth it. Worthy. What does it mean to worship him, to ascribe worth to him? He is worthy of our life. I will tell you this, there's no, I don't know, I'm not even going to try to say it in some cute way. It is a phenomenal waste of the life that Christ has purchased dearly with his blood for us to merely go through the motions of Christianity with never a regard for and never an interaction with the precious Son of God. Man, what a tragedy. I mean, what an empty thing. What a hollow thing. What a meaningless thing. To have the potential to pray to Him, to talk to Him, to hear from Him, to lean on Him, to gain comfort from Him, and then say, I'm not interested in it. I'd rather just go through the motions. It bespeaks a lack of appreciation and value that we have for Him. You say, preacher, could I do that? My question is, why would you want to? Why would you want to? Listen, I like Christianity and I like Christians. I hang around them all the time. But I'll be honest with you, I wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for Christ. You're all pretty awesome, but you ain't that cool. (laughs) It's all about Him. And what an empty thing it would be to do this without Him. And Peter, he's convinced here that Christ is worthy and He's worth it. I want you to go back to our text. And I want to make three statements and be done. And look at verse number 19. He saith unto them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. It's amazing that the plans and ambitions of an omnipotent God for his redeemed creation could be summarized in such a simple statement. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. In this simple statement of commission, we find in in germ form, Three things that sum up what Christianity should look like in the life of a believer living in fellowship with the Savior. See, we've looked at how they were content and how they were convinced, but I want you to notice how they were called. And we'll just divide it real simple and then close. Notice the first phrase. He says this, follow me. He gives them a new path. He says, follow me. He doesn't say go there. He doesn't say come from there. He says, follow me. He doesn't say, wind up in this spot or in that spot. He says, follow me. He doesn't give them a map. He instead gives them his hand. And he says, follow me. If your Christianity in no way involves following him, then whatever it is, it's not Bible Christianity. Whatever it is you or I are attempting to do, If we don't need him for it, 
then it's not what the Bible is talking about. It's not Bible Christianity. I remember hearing a preacher say one time, and this always resonated, stuck with me. He said, my greatest fear is that I'd learn to live the Christian life without Christ. And, you know, God help me, but I'm guilty of that. You're probably not. Pray for me, poor carnal Baptist preacher that I am. You've probably never done that, but I'll confess that I'm guilty of it. I've just learned how to fake it. I've learned how to say what needs to be said, and I've learned how to know what needs to be known, and just go through the motions without ever really talking to him or needing him or being close to him. I don't mean to suggest or imply a crisis of faith. It's not faith that's having the crisis. It's the flesh that has the crisis. But I am saying this, that we're all guilty of it at times in our life. And that includes me of just kind of learning how to just go the direction we think he would want us to go without actually walking in fellowship with him to get there. Just following a path we think should be appropriate following what preachers say Christianity looks like, following what what churches say Christianity should look like, following what our impression of Christianity we think it should look like, and never walking hand in hand with him in the whole process. You say, but preacher, couldn't you get to the same place? Yeah, but why would you take the journey? To do so is to miss what this is all about. He sets them on a new path. He says, follow me. He describes a new process. He says, I will make you. Fishers of men. That's interesting. I will make you fishers of men. In other words, what you need to be, I will transform you into being. He doesn't enroll them in a trade school of sorts. He doesn't enroll them in, in some sort of theological correspondence course or, or system or discipleship class. He instead says, if you'll follow me, I'll make you what you need to be. I don't want you to misunderstand me. I, I think we ought to avail ourselves of all the godly resources that the Lord has given us. I could take you to my office and show you thousands of books I've never read. And, and I, you know, <laughs> I think those are good things. But understand that there is no substitute for the making of a Christian by the careful hand of the Messiah, of the Savior, of the Master. I mean, you understand that he could have given them an instruction manual and we could cutely say, well, that's what the Bible is. But it's interesting that our Lord, when he chose these 12 men, one of them he knew would be a devil, but he chose these 12 men and then he spent time with them. Why? Because only time with Christ could make them what they needed to be. He could have chosen 12 million and distributed literature, but instead he chose 12 and he spent time with them. Why did he do that? Because there is no substitute for time with him. He is the one that makes us what we need to be. It's not the preacher. It's not the evangelist. It's not the literature that we read. It's, it's, it's not the friends that we keep. I'm not saying those things can't influence us. I'm saying those things can't make you what you need to be. He makes you what you need to be through daily fellowship with him. And notice he gives them a new purpose. He says, I will make you. What is he going to make you? He's going to make you fishers of men. In other words, their life would go from being one that was merely about existing to being about a greater purpose. Now, I, I don't believe that God begrudges any of us uh, taking care of our needs. And in fact, he empowers us to do so. And as I said from the very beginning, this isn't a clarion call to, to full-time Christian service. 
But rather what it is a call to is to reevaluate, reexamine, and reimagine what your day-by-day life is and quit viewing it merely as the maintenance of, of, of whatever degree or level of Christianity or consecration that you have attained to and instead recognize that every day of your life ought to be lived in fellowship with him as he transforms you into his image and grows you to greater heights and and plants you to greater depths and enlarges your faith and the scope of influence and of fruitfulness that you have in your life. So I want to ask you, and I'll ask me too, are we have we grown content? Has it just become, well, we're just going through the motions, you know, we're just casting our nets, that's what fishermen do. We're just cleaning our nets. Well, sure, that's what you do whenever they're dirty. We're just, you know, correcting our nets, just fixing flaws. Or are we walking with him day by day and letting him make us into what we need to be and into what glorifies him? Let's bow together tonight. A musician's going to come play. And I want to give you an opportunity. If God spoke to your heart about some matter, would you meet him in this altar? You can't do it without him. I can't do it without him. Whatever we do, if it's done without him, it's not what we're supposed to be doing. It's not the goal of what Christ is doing in our life. And so I wonder tonight, if God stirred your heart about a matter, would you be willing to take him in hand and him take you in hand and for you to allow him to make you into, to work in your life, to deal directly, intimately, personally with you about that matter? Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus, we ask it in his name.